You're listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She is a licensed psychologist and author of the book, A Life Divided, a psychologist's memoir about the double life and dismemberment of her husband and her road to recovery. She's none other than Jan Canty, and we will be discussing surviving a homicide. Very good evening to you, Jan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining 247 Real Talk. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So we're going to jump right into this episode. I'm sure all my audience, by the title of the episode, will be very intrigued just hearing that. So I'm going to ask you to start off by telling us a bit or, or as much as you can about how you got to this point. What were the occurrences in your life that got you to this where you are today? It wasn't planned. <laughs> um, I kind of got drafted into this field, I guess you could call it, because what happened in 1985, to, and I'm just going to give you a quick overview, um, is I've been married about 10 years at that point to a man 18 years older than me. And he was a very, very predictable, uh, hardworking guy. He was a psychologist. And one evening, it was very stormy out. I was sitting in front of the television watching a special on uh, uh, on television. It was a three-hour special. Uh, and he didn't come home. He didn't come home for dinner. He didn't call, which was very unlike him. And a week later, I still didn't know where he was. But I was called down to the Detroit police headquarters by an officer Landeros and asked me to come to the homicide division. When I went there, they told me that they felt he was murdered, but they did not have a body. And at that point in history, that's what you needed in order to have a conviction because DNA evidence wasn't then what it is today. And they proceeded to tell me that he had been leading a double life downtown. He had been giving out cash. He had um, involved himself with this man and woman. He was a, the man he was involved with was John Fry. He was a pimp and Don Spence was a prostitute and he was supporting their life, their drug lifestyle with our cash. It turned out later, I did not know this then, but it was to the tune of $300,000 that he had given them of our money. He had given them a, a scrapbook of the in, that I had made about the interior of our house, what the value of our belongings was they had that in their possession and when he could not give any more money he ran out they uh, clubbed him to death and then dismembered him and drove him to northern michigan and buried him in a shallow bog that was reserved for roadkill but what happened to change that was uh, there was he had a guy that helped him bury the body parts and he turned himself in i don't think they would have ever found out otherwise and he turned state's evidence, and uh, they were both charged with murder and both convicted. And then the media fallout happened, um, and it was a life-changing event, to say the least, because I knew nothing of his all their life. I did not know that we were nearly homeless. 
I did not know that he had been uh, lying. And it was like every day there was some kind of new revelation to deal with. And ultimately, what happened is the media just would not let it go. It was too salacious, I guess, for them. So I ended up changing my name and moving out of state and did not speak of it for about 30 years. Wow. Wow. So before you go on any further, um, I'm reflecting on you know what you just said, and I have a couple of questions. The first one is, so here you are married to a man who, like you said, for all intents and purposes, is a creature of habit. And then one night mm-hmm. he doesn't come home. And then mm-hmm. a week later, you end up at the, at the, you got this call from the police. Tell me or tell my audience, what was that? The fact that he was so, used to be so consistent. What, what was that week like? Well, I was alone. Uh, my family uh, was out of state, but my parents flew in. That helped. But physically, I felt ill the whole time. I was getting almost no sleep. I was probably running on adrenaline. I wasn't eating. It was like really the best way to describe it. It was like one long day. It was not seven days. There was no morning, noon, and night. It was like time had no relevance in my life because I had had, everything had been disrupted. My schedule was upside down, so it was um, confusing. It was exhausting. It was um, full of uncertainty and indecision. I, I didn't know who to turn to to even help me because I didn't know anybody that had ever been in this situation. We didn't have computers back then. We didn't have cell phones back then. Uh, so there was no place to go to even start this process of trying to make sense of it. And it uh, was a very um, confusing week. I mean, it was to say I was tired is just under under describing what it was like. I just felt like a zombie. I felt like I was wrapped in gauze, that things weren't real, that had a real unreal quality to the whole thing. Like I had stepped into somebody else's life all of a sudden. He was 18 years older than me, and so I had a lot of respect for him. I had a lot of belief in him, and I just could not believe that he would have done anything to put our lives in jeopardy, ever. Wow. So, okay, so then you... You go through the whole saga of the police and um, you say that they thought that he, at that point, uh, was dead or was murdered. Um, mm-hmm. What At that point, were you aware of some kind of evidence they had to make that statement? All they told me was that they found, this was their words, the, the inspector, uh, Gil Hill, he said, we know he's been frequenting a house on Casper Street in Detroit, and it's very obvious something went terribly wrong in that house, but there is no body. And uh, until we have a body, we can't move forward on this. But it was only about two days later that they called me back and told me that they had a body, parts actually, and they needed me to go to the morgue to identify um, his head, basically. Uh, and because they didn't have all of his body parts, they never did recover all of them. And so that was two days later. My parents had flown in by that time. And they wanted me, 
they told me the reason they wanted me to identify him was to drive home the point he's never coming home. But I think in retrospect, the other reason was they wanted me to be in court. They wanted have they wanted to put me on the witness stand to testify to something. I knew nothing about the crime. I didn't know that I did not know the people that he was involved in, but I could speak to his identity. And I think they wanted that for the impact on the jury. Okay, yes, I can see there the usual um uh, criminal justice methods of um sort of manipulating um situations to ensure um and they have they have they have understands of how you would react to to certain news. So mm-hmm. now that you know at that point and it's coming close to my first main question and that is when you got to a point I'm figuring at some point you got to a place where you were struggling with emotions and from what you're telling me one had to be anger one had to be disbelief. One had to be maybe a sense of betrayal based on the double life. And somewhere in between there, because he was your husband, there had to be grief. And for someone like myself yeah. who has lost someone close to me, um, the emotions that we go through are not necessarily explainable. They don't necessarily make sense at the moment. So tell mm-hmm. me, what are some common experiences of people who grieve a homicide? I think a lot depends on the circumstances. If you're speaking particularly about homicide, grief as a result of the homicide, there are differences in the ages of people. You know, a five-year-old is going to grieve very differently than somebody who's 55. It will depend also on the circumstances. For example, if the murder is between family members, that's going to impact them much differently than if it's a stranger. But in general, I can say that there's a tremendous amount of fear. One reaction is for your own safety, your own fear of your own family. Uh, You feel disbelief. You feel anxious, very frightened. And it isn't until later, I think, that the depression begins to kick in. I think you're so running on adrenaline that you can't, sleep and you can't eat and you're in high overdrive and you're all full on. But then you can only keep that up so long and your body and your mind just say enough. And then I think depression hits. And sadly, what happens frequently is that you get this swell of support initially, partly because people are interested, but I think of most people really want to be there for you. And then after the funeral and after you know, a couple of weeks after, three weeks after, four weeks after, the they start to fade away in their support. And by five months, you don't hear from people anymore. And that's about the time you really need to, because the full weight of it now is in your face. You're now facing your physical repercussions of what's happened in your own body. You're sometimes, as in I, my case, you're faced with the financial fallout there are so many other dimensions of this and that's about the time your support system fades away. So then the next emotion is an extreme sense of isolation and stigma that comes with being a homicide survivor. And, 
that can stick with you for a lifetime, really. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I, I can also relate because I remember um, the closest person I had died, you know, for me was my mother. And mm-hmm. I remember in my situation, um, within two or three days, there were a lot of people leading up to the funeral. I mean, home was packed. And then I think two or three, maybe four days later, everyone was gone back to their lives and, and yep. you were left holding the bag. And, and I, and I agree with you, you know, it, it, it's sometime after when you start to deal with, with the reality, you know, and, and, and things start to start to become permanent in this, in the absence of this person is when you actually need those, um, that support. Um, what are some protective, especially if there's a, Go ahead. especially if there's, if that's when the trial kicks off too. Well, yeah, I didn't even have that, that circumstance. So that's even, yes, that's the, I can imagine because then you, you're reliving everything, um, daily. I'm assuming. Right. Right about the time you're starting to get a little bit of healing, then the trial happens yeah. and it opens it up, especially if you have to sit there and listen to the evidence, which is can be grueling. However, about 95% of murder cases today are resolved through a plea bargain, not through a trial itself. Yeah, like that's a, that's I, in many of those cases that's unfortunate, um, and not for not mm-hmm. in terms of the victim, but in terms of the outcome sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So, what are some protective and aggravating factors in coping with a murder? Um, there are, are are several. Um, in terms of the protective factors, if we take that first, I think uh, if if by chance the murder occurs in a group, let's say you're with four friends and one of the friends is killed. You've, you've gone through that with other people. And I think being with others during, during a a shared experience, and I'm not speaking now of genocide, I'm talking about homicide. Um, being with other people, I think is a buffer. I think that's protective because you have a shared history, a shared reference point. You're not in it by yourself. I think another protective factor is if prior to the murder, you had, you bring to the situation physical health and strong self-confidence. If you have a flexible outlook on life and you're adaptable and tend to be outgoing. And the reason outgoing is important is because research, what little has been done, has shown that one of the best things that you can do is connect with other people who are homicide survivors, which rarely happens, but if you are more outgoing, you're more likely to reach out and want to talk with other people than if you're an introvert. I think another protective factor is having friends who understand the importance of just physically being in your presence, that they understand there are no magic words. There's nothing that they can do to make it go away, but they're willing to just simply be be there with you, even if it's sleeping in the next room for the first week and not even necessarily talking a lot. I think another is if people are prepared for death. By that, I mean if if they have a will, if they know the passwords to the computers, if they have um, some kind of preparation, because to do all that, to get all those documents together after a homicide is overwhelming. You're already running uh, behind, you know, in terms of your thinking ability. And now you've got to come up with all kinds of data and documents. And if, if the places, you know, if, if they don't know where to go to look for all that, it certainly adds to your aggravation. So one protective factor is to be prepared like an emergency folder. 
Another thing is if the individual has some sort of an established relationship with a professional that might be able to assist them, such as a healthcare provider or an attorney that they can turn to or a, a spiritual leader, as opposed to having to go out and search for that right at your low ebb. Another protective factor would be if they happen to live in a country or in a state within the United States that gives them victim rights. That That's not guaranteed in every state. It's certainly not guaranteed in every country. There's a lot of variation. Some are much more proactive than others. Another protective factor is if they happen to know somebody who's already been through a, a tragedy like this that they can turn to and and help them understand it. Off the top of my head, I would say those are all important. Uh, The flip side of it, in terms of aggravating factors, those that would make it worse for an individual, would be if this is the latest in a series of traumas in that person's life. Because trauma, you might think of as a dose response. People all have a limit. So if they live in a high crime area, if they've been diagnosed with cancer, if they've if their dog got run over the next day, the day before, anything which is traumatic to them prior to the homicide is going to weaken their ability to respond. Another is um, if the person has been exposed to the media excessively, if it's given high-profile coverage where uh, they just can't turn any which way before they're not having a camera in your face. A great example would be Sue Klebold from Columbine. It was her son that was the lead, one of the lead kids in the Columbine massacre, and the press hounded her mercifully, mercilessly. Uh, that is an aggravating factor because they tear your life apart and inspect it and look for clues and tend to question you, and um, you're tried in the press. Another is um, it, having few resources, so it's harder for poorer people to deal with this because there's going to be expenses. You're going to have burial expenses. You might have to take a time off of work, especially if you were injured in the attack yourself. Now you might not have anybody to help take care of your children. You know, if you had, if your spouse was the one that was killed and now you've got children that were being cared for by the deceased spouse who's no longer there, maybe you have to move. Uh, That's an issue. So having few resources is an aggravating factor. Another is if you are socially isolated. Maybe it's because you live in a rural community. Maybe it's because you're in a wheelchair. Maybe it's because you've always been introverted and don't have a lot of friends and neighbors nearby. That's going to increase the load on you. Another aggravating factor is if the deceased was the main breadwinner in the family. Um, If you happen to witness the murder, uh, if the deceased was a small child because a murdered child, most people, first responders and parents and so on, will tell you that's one of the worst things that can happen. It's bad enough if it's an adult, but when it's a child that's been murdered, it just has a special emphasis in terms of the trauma. Uh, Another aggravating factor is if there were multiple family members killed in one attack. Um, Another is if you had pre-existing health problems, because they're going to be flaring up, like if you have um, heart disease, for example. And if you have poor treatment by 
professionals, like in law enforcement or prosecuting attorney's office, that's going to aggravate your situation too. So, so a lot of these things are beyond your control. You can't predict, you know, it's, it's a crapshoot. I mean, for, in my case, I could not have had better law, better treatment by the law professionals. Uh, they did me, they did me a good job for me, but I've heard horror stories about some others who were treated up to and including uh, corruption. And it's, it's an awful thing to go through. Yeah. I can imagine that, you know, with dealing with that kind of situation, then having to deal with, uh, you know, all these uh, external uh, aggravations and, and challenges. Um, and thinking through what I experienced, I remember when I went back to work after my mother died and, and the whole thing was over, I was dreading going back to work because I was I had played over and over in my mind and I was really sure that I would walk into the 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 condolences that there are condolences that I didn't personally welcome because to me they they, they brought about sadness and kind of put me in a, in a in a dark place that I had fought to come out from. Um, in in your opinion, your experience, what well-meaning condolences actually harm and offend? Anything which is a platitude, or what I call bumper sticker responses, like uh, everything happens for a reason, time heals all wounds, they wouldn't want you to be sad, uh, it's time you move on, God has a plan, anything like that is an insult. It's really makes it much worse. Uh, platitudes is is. If you if that's the only thing you can think of, don't say anything at all because that's going to do more harm than good, and that's unfortunately a very frequent occurrence because our culture does a really bad job of death in general, let alone death because of violence, and people don't often know what to say. But but resorting to platitudes or bumper sticker slogan kind of things is really not going to help the situation whatsoever. In fact, it's going to make it worse. Yes, I, 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 when you're saying that, I, I, I can recall a situation uh, on September 11th. Um, there was a lady that worked with me, or I worked with a coworker, and she lost her son who was, who was working for the restaurant, I think it was in the top floor of one of the World Trade Centers. And it took her months to get herself together and return to work. And I remember the first day she came back, um, exactly who I thought would do it too walked up to her and said, I'm so sorry. And it seemed like the lady just crumbled. It seemed like the three months that she spent, four months that she spent recovering were all just ripped to pieces at that one moment. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I completely agree with that because that was one of my fears. And I, and I really kind of um, told one of my coworkers ahead of time that I was coming back and to do me a favor and let, the staff know, you know, I don't want to hear that. Just don't do it. And I, I didn't really care if anybody mm -hmm. was offended by it. I just didn't want to go through that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I work in a building with, with a lot of people and, and had a large staff and I could not, uh, you know, endure that for hundreds of people coming to me like that. So right. in, 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 in this scenario, and I've never spoken to someone who's had a story like yours. Um, there's so many things that come to mind, but in the support um, 
phase of it are, are the needed supports. Um, are there, or did you find that there are structured resources uh, to help homicide survivors? Back then, there was none, and now there's a few. The, the, the best organized resources we have currently pertain to parents of murdered children. I would say if anybody, though, that's the group that really does they have their act together. They do. Um, so parents of murdered children or the Canadian parents of murdered children groups, they're not in every state, but they are, they have a great website. They have conventions, they do publications, speaking engagements and whatnot. And they're willing to help you find resources. Let's say it's your partner that's 30 years old that got killed. They'll still try to help you. They're not going to say, oh, well, they're older than 18. Go away. They're not going to do that. But parents of murdered children is probably the best uh, in terms of being historically they've been around a long time and they've got it together, but it is not available everywhere. Another group is Compassionate Friends. Uh, that's a volunteer organization. So again, it's, you know, you hope you get somebody who knows what they're doing. There is a great book I want to mention. Uh, it was written by a homicide survivor after his 16-year-old son was murdered the second day on a job. He uh, wrote a book called What to Do When the Police Leave. And he wrote it simply because there is no guidebook. There was no checklist, no information available. And he sat there that night after the police left and he's like, well, now what, what do I do? And so after the trial and, you know, I'm talking two, three years down the road, he still had all his notes and all of his work that he had pieced together. And he decided to put it in a book form. And it's, it's a, it's a short book, but it really gets to the nitty gritty of what you need to do when the police leave. There's actually a, a chart of things to do. Like you gather your, your tribe, you know, whoever that might be, you get a physical exam, you call the funeral home. It just leads you through what you need to do. Um, and I think that's a, a resource that we don't often know about, but it's out there. Um, and then there is my podcast, which I developed because of the lack of let me put it this way. The podcasts that are out there that deal with crime don't do homicide survivors any favors because they are trivializing and enter, using it for entertainment. The true crime podcast is it's irritating to a lot of people who have been through this. And I want to, and I, I chose a podcast format because you can listen to the episodes over and over because your concentration is so poor during this early phase of this, you might not hear it all the first two or three times and and you don't have enough energy to get through a book, but you might be able to passively listen to a podcast. So there's that. Um, that's about it. There's really just, you know, you might be able to find a therapist, but there is no guarantee that they are adequately trained in homicide. They might know about PTSD they might know about grief, and they might have had a class in death and dying, but that's going to be about the extent of it. So you're not, you know, you, you can't go out expecting to find a lot of clinicians out there that are familiar with this whole subject matter, and we need to change that. I mean, schools need to change that and include courses on this, but we don't have it at this point in time. And even if we did, there are people that would be reluctant to go or that might not have the finances to go or the ability to get out the door, 
get on a bus and get where they need to go. So that's not always the solution either. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like I said, it has me thinking of so many things because this is not a conversation I've ever had before. And um, I'm sure um, long after this episode has been as aired, I'm still going to be thinking about uh, what, you know, your, your whole journey. Um, So you're at a point where I, I don't know if you've overcome grief or if you find yourself in a place that's conflicted, that may be conflicted grief. Um, what is that? And, and, and how common do you think it is in people who've experienced what you've experienced? Well, I think conflicted, well, first, first of all, to define it, um, conflicted grief is, uh, there's different kinds of grief. Conflicted grief is a particular kind in which a person has some relief in the grief. So on the one hand, they will experience the, the, the usual sorrow and loss and wishing the person didn't, ha- didn't die and all the, the usual stuff that you think of when you think about grief. But in addition to that, there's this sense of relief that the person who caused me this anguish isn't here anymore. So if you've had, like in my situation, the conflict was he was lying to me. He was unfaithful. He was putting my life in jeopardy. He did this voluntarily and repeatedly over 18, this other life over 18 months. So that's where the conflict comes from. It's like, I don't want that back. I don't wish him back in my life. Uh, Good riddance, you know, that's mixed in with the grief. And then you feel guilty for that because we're not supposed to speak ill of the dead. We're not even supposed to think ill of the dead. So you hold that really close to your chest and don't let anybody know that's what you're thinking. But it is what you're thinking. So that complicates your grief more because now you feel guilty on top of sad. <laughs> and I don't think it's that rare because I think anybody who's had a troubled relationship with the deceased is going to experience that. Perhaps, for example, the person who died was abusive and and now they they're they're murdered or missing and and presumed dead. Uh, you might feel some relief in that that that, that tormentor is gone. But the problem is, while I think conflicted grief is not that rare, talking about it is. We don't talk about it. You're never going to find a Hallmark card at the grocery store addressing conflicted grief. <laughs> it's just so taboo. So you've got that on your shoulders. And you, and I didn't even have a name for it back then. I just knew privately, secretly, I felt like, wow, I don't have to deal with him anymore. I don't have to face him with this. He's gone. And that was, I thought we had a pretty decent marriage, but I'm like, I guess not. You know, For him to be able to pull this off. Uh, so it was a clean break. I mean, he, had he not died, I don't think I would have stayed around, but he did. And I think uh, that conflict, that internal ambivalence stayed with me for some time. It's no longer an issue uh, that that was resolved a long time ago. But it's when you've been a homicide survivor, I think it's a fallacy that you ever are 100% over it. I don't believe so. I, I, th- I certainly think you can thrive after that. I certainly think you can enjoy life again, but it's not like it's you're ever back to baseline. Yeah. 
it creeps up on you once in a while. Like I was with my friends uh, at movie theater a few years ago when the movie we were going to see was not available. It was sold out. So they wanted to go see Al Capone. And I'm like, well, it didn't really excite me, but we're already here. Okay. So we went into the movie theater and I, there was this scene. I don't know if you, this was with um, um, Robert De Niro was the star in the show. And there's this one scene where he has a baseball bat in his hand and he's, he's slowly talking to the seated men in front of him at this formal dinner. He's talking about teamwork and trust. And then all of a sudden he just slams the baseball bat into the head of the one of the people in front of him, which is exactly how my husband died. I almost got sick to my stomach. I left. I went out to the car. I couldn't even finish the movie. So, you know, there's, there's going to be things like that, that you can't foresee that will creep up. And when they do, you got to ride it out. You've got to be able to see it for what it is. Um, and, and to say, you know, this is part and parcel for what you're going through, but you don't get back to baseline. Yeah. I can, it's a uh, life altering event. It's dramatic and it's life. You know, it's, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a trauma that remains with you. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So here we are today. Um, tell us a little bit about your book. My book. Um, my book was 30 years in the writing. Like I said, I didn't, I put this all on the shelf in the back of my mind because I wanted to work on me first. I wanted to resolve as best I could, you know, my PTSD, my anger, my depression, all that comes with it. I wanted to face that head on. And I did that in a number of ways. I, I got in physical shape. I did triathlons. I toured the world. I did volunteer work on five continents. It put things in perspective for me. I changed careers. I started teaching rather than doing clinical work. And so, and I adopted two special needs children whose mother was murdered. So all of that was in preparation to, you know, I want to get on with life and I want to get, get ahead. I don't want to be mired into this thing. And then um, three events happened, which caused me to write the book. I was at work and there was a woman that was missing and people were coming up to me and going, could you imagine that? I mean, somebody missing in your family. And I'm going, oh no, I couldn't imagine that. And I'm thinking to myself, you're lying. It's like you're leading a double life, you know? And that same day we had a speaker come in that talked about the physical repercussions of having a secret in your life for years. And I had just been diagnosed with cancer. I thought, well, isn't that an interesting comment that he made? And then the third thing of that same day, I went back into my office and I was mulling all of this over and I looked over on my bookshelf and I have a collection of books about people who've been through trauma and, and how they dealt with it. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, if they can write about it, maybe I can write about it. So I gingerly started talking about it for the first time. And much to my surprise, people were very supportive. They were not judgmental. And I was going to write it as a novel and people were going, no, don't do that. So I started researching it. I read 11 pounds of court testimony. I went back to Detroit twice and interviewed people. I looked at old microfiche of the newspaper clippings, studied photographs, looked at and interviewed some of Al's old um, high school friends and sat down and started writing. And so I set out to write a book about my life, but what it actually turned out to be more about really was 
the experience of homicide survivors just generally, not just me, but what we as a group tend to experience. And uh, it just came out in June, but um, I'm happy with it. I, I, I did my best is what I can say. And I, and when I set out to write it, I wanted it to be deliberately, I, I set out to make it as subjective as I could. I wanted the reader to feel as if they were in my shoes. I wanted them to see things as I saw them. I wanted them to hear things as I remembered them. Uh, I wanted them to experience it from a first person standpoint, vicariously, not objectively. And um, I I tried to make it uh, a page turner, even though everybody in the very beginning knows who who was killed and why. That was a little tricky to pull off, but I think I did it. And uh, it turned out. My only regret is it turned out to be a little longer than I had anticipated. <laughs> but but uh, it's done okay. I'm I'm happy with it. That's really really great. And for my audience. Um... The book is available on Amazon. It's entitled A Life Divided, a psychologist's memoir about the double life and dismemberment of her husband and her road to discovery, to recovery, I should say. And then um, you also have a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. That's some newer. Um, that I started in February of, of this year. It was suggested to me by a relative who does crime scene cleanup for a living. And she said, you know, you'd be really good at that. <laughs> and I knew nothing about podcasts at that point, but I, it was a learning curve. But I, I decided to do it. I wanted it to be dignified. I, I definitely did not want it to be anything like true crime podcasts. And what I have done is every, every episode is a, a, a different homicide survivor. And their stories are incredibly different. Uh, I have, uh, here's, a, I'll just give you a couple of examples. There was a woman that was blind. She lives in Mississippi. She's an artist, pretty remarkable for a blind person. She does face moldings of jazz musicians. That's what her specialty is. And she had this very close relationship with this guy in Panama. They were buddies, good friends. He was planning to move back to the States and all of a sudden she didn't hear from him and she had this bad feeling, but she could not go to Panama because she's blind. She did not know Spanish, but at any rate through persistence and phone calls, she found his murderer and he was a serial murderer and she resolved the case whole continent away. I had another case of a, a woman whose niece was murdered when she was two years of age by the boyfriend of the uh, mother and uh, the guy was convicted, and he spent 20 years incarcerated. And once he got out, he moved right near the family, and she bumps into him all the time. So he's still in her life. Uh, the one that's coming up this uh, next episode, which will be it airs a week from Wednesday, it comes out twice a month, is a young, very young, I think she's 22, 23-year-old, Korean-American whose mother and sister were murdered. And she's the, she has no other relatives in this country. And she had to face that and uh, sell the house and get the funeral arrangements together and fly across the country to do all of that. And she's probably one of the brightest people I've ever interviewed for the show, and especially in terms of her ability to eloquently dis describe the cognitive changes that come about through homicide. 
So every episode is very different. Um, occasionally, I interview an expert in a related field. For example, I have an interview of a hom- from a homicide detective. I have an interview of a criminal attorney. Um, I have had an interview with a physician who talks about trauma. So it, it's, it's a collection, but mostly it's from people who've gone through this from a first-person standpoint. And the way each episode unfolds is that about the first 10 to 15 minutes, I talk about that particular topic, that particular issue that's raised in that death. And then I interview the person and that's the rest of the show. That's fantastic. What's the name of the podcast? The Domino Effect of Murder. Actually, there's no V in there. It's Domino Effect of Murder. It, It comes out through the Mental Health News Radio Network. But if you Googled Domino effect of murder, you'd find it. Okay, and I'm assuming it's available on all the podcast apps? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, is. fantastic. And it's well, now heard in 10 countries already, so I'm wow, pleased with that. Wow. Well, I, you know, I, I, I know that I found this an amazing conversation, and I'm so honored and, and happy that you came on this show. I'm happy well, thank that you, Julian. to see where you are now. Um, you know, I can imagine that you, 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 if if you were to sort of wrap your entire experience up in a bow, you went from this happy point at some point to you know being married through this uh, bliss, and then this betrayal, and then this grief, and then this process of starting over. Um, mm-hmm. And I say it like that because I never wrote a book; it was always my intention. But I have a few compositions and. I read them at the end of my podcast from time to time. And as we were going through this, there's one that I wrote that came to mind. So as I wrap this up, first of all, I'm going to thank you very, very much for being on the show. Um, You're an amazing guest and an amazing person. And I encourage all of my listeners to, you know, check out your podcast and, you know, head over to Amazon and get that book because, you know, there's nothing (laughs) like like good reading and, 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 truly connecting to experiences of real life experiences, you know, that someone else's journey has been. And I'm just about ready to take off for Detroit to do the audio version of it too. So the audio book version will be out later in the year. Fantastic. And, um, as you know, you're, you're always welcome to come back on the show and tell us more about, you know, anything you have to, but yeah, thanks again so much. And um, I want to end the episode there and I want to end it with the composition that I wrote and it's called Starting Over. So many of us are faced with difficult realities created by desire and joy to mold new chapters in our lives. And so many of those realities become faded dreams due to the revelation of distant elements and the progression of time. My chapter of reality was announced with the inherent energy of joy, the subtle confidence of hope, the Mona Lisa of dreams and the expectations of success. There was a silent sureness that as I embarked on this new journey, that this would be the culmination of all things hoped for and all experience gained. My plan of attack consisted of selflessness, the sharing of love and support, the interdiction of confidence and ambition, and the infusion of love so pure that it could not be denied. At first I was right. The reception of en- was enthusiastic. The emotion was responsive. 
It was a new world that promised truth, loyalty, trust, and sustained dedication. The possibilities were endless, and the visible horizon presented a world that was euphoric. This is not to say that the journey was paved with immeasurable bliss, but each attempt at an obstacle was paired with a blessed solution. Living in the past with all of the anxiety of the unknown, I'm still at peace, and the chapter promises a long-sought rainbow and a thunderous result for my effort. As the longing increases and as I get closer to my bliss, the sunshine begins to fade. The glee turns into a frown and the promises into uncontrollable nightmares. In the midst of the beauty of happy emotions, this once promising chapter that guarantees greatness is actually also dependent on the dedication, integrity, love and compassion and truthfulness of another. Another dreamer who invested in my chapter but lacked the substance and discipline to ride the journey to glory. Blinded by the sweet nectar of victory, invested with all that is me, the serpent of deception manifests itself and eventually steals my dream and defines the dismal outcome of my once promising chapter. Left with only the remnants of my bliss and clinging only to the skeleton of my true self, I'm faced with the reality of a scared picture of my once indestructible rainbow. Bent but not broken, dismayed but not defeated, hurt but not horrified, and burnt but not bitter, I realize now that life demands that I seek a new chapter. What will the silhouette of my being resemble after this chapter? I know not. How will I face the arduous challenge of creating a new chapter? This is yet to be seen. Will I ever, ever finally reach a new rainbow? Only God knows. All of these things, inherent, terrifying, realistic, and unknown, seem only possible to, overcome, to be overcome by my commitment to faith and loyalty to my Creator. Just one more thing to add to this journey we call life, a reality to many who refuse to give up. It is the inevitable task driven by the effort to never let the ungodly define the truth of my life. It is the truth of my future and the heartbreaking likelihood of starting over. say a very special thank you to my guest Jan Canty for sharing her personal experience with us. I also want to thank my listeners for your continued support. You can listen to all of the episodes of 247 Real Talk on your favorite podcast app or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net If you'd like to send me a message or you'd like to be a guest in the show you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net Until the next time, take care of yourselves and each other.